Hi, welcome back to Feel Good Murders. I'm so glad you're here today and thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really enjoyable experience doing this podcast uh, for me. So I'm so happy that you guys take the time to listen or to watch me on YouTube. Before I get started today, I want to let you guys know that I am sick again. So <laughs> if my voice sounds a little bit weird, that would be why. If you're on YouTube, you might be able to see that my nose is a little bit red. Hopefully you can't. I tried to cover it up with makeup, but uh, it was pretty hard. So it is what it is. Hopefully I don't sound too out of breath. I actually haven't been sick in a really long time. And now I've been sick twice in the last two months. So I don't know what that's all about, but I mean, I think I'm fine. <laughs> Today's episode, if you listen to the first couple of episodes of this podcast, like before it was on YouTube, you know that I started this podcast while my mom was um, in the emergency room. Later after that, we found out that she's sick and she's currently going through chemo. Again, she's good. I don't need to, you know, keep telling you guys that. But this episode, I originally released just for her and our family members. So I've recorded this before, but I decided to redo it um, on YouTube. And obviously I'm a little bit more comfortable now, so I think it'll be better around this time. But anyway, let's go ahead and get started. Today, I'm going to be telling you about the story of Michelle Martinko. Michelle was born Michelle Marie Martinko on October 6th, 1961 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Her and I share the same middle name. Cedar Rapids, Iowa is, it's not exactly in the middle of Iowa. It's closer to the Illinois border side. And today, at least, it is a, it's a larger city. It is over 100,000 people uh, that live there. I want to say it's about 130,000 people actually that live there. So not a small town. Back in 1979, when our story takes place, maybe it was a small town then. I really couldn't find any data on the population back then. But Michelle was born 1961 and our story takes place in 1979 when she is 18 years old. She's a senior in high school. So Michelle was said to be talented in a lot of aspects of her life. She was in theater, choir, and twirling squad, which I'm going to assume is the same thing as color guard. You know, like the people at football games with the marching band who have the batons and they, you know, they kind of go with the marching band. I think that's what that is. It, it sure sounds like it. So she had good grades. She was said to be kind. She actually had plans to go to Iowa State University in the fall. And that's why I chose this episode originally because I went to Iowa State University. Michelle had planned to study design at Iowa State, and I had a couple friends or acquaintances that studied design at Iowa State, and they were always at the design building just all hours of the night. They they didn't sleep. I don't know why they didn't do their work during the day, or maybe they did, and it just takes that much work. But anyway, I think Michelle would have liked going to Iowa State, but that's just my little plug for my alma mater. <laughs> So like I said, Michelle was really well-liked, she was talented, and she was also beautiful. She had a really pretty smile, pretty eyes. She had this big, beautiful, like, Farrah Fawcett blonde hair. She was adorable, even for today's standards, honestly. And with that, it sounds like people were kind of jealous of her. Probably other girls, if we're being honest, but 
I mean, she was pretty and she was talented and uh, honestly, they're high schoolers. I get it. I would have been jealous of her back then too. And as much as I've evolved as a person since high school, I think I would probably be jealous of her today too. I mean, pretty and talented, you can have it all, you know? <laughs> On December 19th, 1979, this was a Wednesday and Michelle had a choir banquet to attend. And then afterwards, she decided to go to the local mall to go shopping for a winter coat. She had $180 with her. She went to the mall. Some sources say that she worked at the mall as well. Not that day in particular, but I couldn't find a confirmation on that. Regardless, she goes to the mall, goes shopping, and says hi to some friends while she's there. She must have not found a coat that she liked because she left with $180 still with her in her purse. On her way out of the mall, she ran into a friend named Kurt Thomas. Her and Kurt chatted for a minute and then she made her way to her car to go ahead and go home. Kurt Thomas watched her walk to her car and then after this exchange, Kurt could not have guessed this, but he would be the last person to ever see Michelle alive. Michelle was said to have left the mall around 8 o'clock that night, and I believe that's around the time that she was supposed to be home. At 2 a.m., after her still not returning home and her dad not hearing from her, her dad reported her missing to the police. And obviously, this is a time before cell phones, but this, maybe this was a different time. Maybe it was a little bit more normal for teenagers to come home later because, again, there was no cell phone, so there wasn't an easy way to get in contact with your parents. Maybe, I'm guessing. But it sounds like Michelle was a good girl. It sounds like she stuck to her word and she was on time. So this was really not normal for her. So the police and Michelle's parents begin searching for her. And at 4 a.m., her car is found at the mall parking lot. Police look inside to search the car. And sadly, this is where Michelle is found stabbed to death. Michelle had been stabbed 29 times. 29. That, that's a lot. Michelle had defensive wounds showing that she really fought for her life as best as she could. And there was a lack of blood outside of the car, so that tells detectives and police that she was killed inside of her car. So she wasn't killed outside of it and then placed in her car, she was killed inside of her car. So the reason I mentioned the size of Cedar Rapids at the beginning of this episode is because when I first read this, I was wondering how nobody saw it. I mean, I understand that Around 8 or 9 p.m. in December, it's dark. I mean, in December, it gets dark at what, like 5 p.m.? I get that, but I mean, it's not the middle of the night. And don't you think there would be at least somebody around the mall still? I don't know, but I guess nobody saw it. After Michelle's autopsy, the medical examiner determined that she was killed with a sharp, pointy object, but didn't definitively say that it was a knife. There were also no fingerprints at the scene, and it was determined that she died between 8 and 9 p.m. Now, what's strange is that, so what's weird is that the $180 that she brought with her to go shopping was still with her, so this wasn't a robbery gone wrong, and she was found fully clothed, so there was no sign of sexual assault. So what could be the reason then? Police felt like this was, quote, personal in nature, so meaning that they think somebody she knew did this to her. They think maybe somebody was jealous of her and tried to kill her or something along those lines. So naturally, the police look into the last person to see Michelle alive, Kurt Thomas. They question him quickly and they even said to him, quote, why did you kill Michelle? To which he said, she's dead. 
So he had no idea that she was even dead, or at least that's how it appeared. To get more leads, police turned to Michelle's family to try to get an idea of where to go next. They pointed the police to Michelle's ex-boyfriend, Andy. Andy and Michelle had a difficult breakup, and it seemed like Andy wasn't taking it too well. And the jealous ex-boyfriend angle makes complete sense in this case. But with no physical evidence, Andy and Kurt were both released. The police at this point are like, well, what what the hell do we do now? So they asked the public for help and they got a ton of responses. So police are taking these tips and they're going through them left and right and interviewing people, polygraphing people, polygraphing, I don't think that's a word, giving people a polygraph test. <laughs> And, of course, the rumor mill about Michelle's death starts happening. Anything from jealousy to even sex work and drugs. Nasty things that people are saying about Michelle. I mean, I'm sure she had rumors about her in life and now in death as well. All of these, obviously, were completely untrue. So the police are kind of getting nowhere and the community started to feel really scared. I mean, this was a community that didn't even lock their doors at night generally. And now people are worried because there's seemingly no motive here. People are wondering, well, why? Why did this happen? Who who did this? Should they be concerned about their neighbor or was it just some crazy, strange man? They don't know, and the killer is still out there. Five months go by since Michelle's death, and finally a woman comes forward with information from December 20th. That is the day after Michelle's murder. She claims that she was driving past the mall at 2 a.m. on December 20th. Remember, Michelle was supposed to be dead between 8 and 10 p.m. on December 19th, so she's driving by the mall just several hours after Michelle's death. She said she saw Michelle's car and a man standing next to the open driver's side door of Michelle's car. So police are glad to get information like this, but it doesn't really lead to anything. Six months after Michelle's murder, police must have really been getting desperate because approximately 300 people were interviewed for this case. And for 30 of the people that were interviewed, hypnosis was also used and they even consulted psychics. So they were really trying to find anything that they possibly could. So two of the people that were hypnotized were used to create a composite sketch of who they thought the killer might be. The description that they came up with was of a man who was late teens or early 20s, weighing between 165 and 175 pounds with brown curly hair. So that's like the most common description of a man. <laughs> I mean, this description is so common, it, it doesn't lead to anything. There's a lot of men that look like that. So after struggling to find a lead that works, Michelle's case goes cold. In 2006, 27 years after Michelle's murder, a cold case investigator in Cedar Rapids takes another look at Michelle's case and finds what she believes to be the blood of the killer on Michelle's clothes. The police take this blood and use it to create a DNA profile and start attempting to find a match for this DNA. So, I bet you're wondering about the ex-boyfriend, right? Well, they tested Andy and he was not a match for the DNA found on Michelle's clothes. Now, what about Kurt? He was the last person to see her alive, so it surely makes sense that he could have done it, right? They go to ask Kurt for his DNA, and he did not voluntarily give his DNA for this case. He said, nope, come back with a warrant. And to be fair, I know this doesn't make Kurt look very good, but Kurt was married to a judge, so she was the one that said, absolutely not, make them get a warrant. And I know it doesn't make Kurt look good, but 
I get it. You have the right to do that. So eventually, Kurt did give his DNA. They tested it, and he was not a match either. So it's not the ex-boyfriend, and it's not Kurt Thomas. So there were 80 potential suspects that had been named in this case over the years. 60 of them were tested against the DNA, and nothing. 27 years and 80 suspects later, and still nothing. In 2017, a company was used to create a phenotype or an image of the killer based on the DNA that they found on Michelle's clothes. This new composite showed a man with blonde hair and blue eyes, very different from the police composite sketch that had been created back then. So the police asked the public if they knew anybody in 1979 who matched this description, somebody who had blonde hair and blue eyes. And again... The problem with this is that this is also a common description. There's a lot of people that look like that. So the police got a ton of responses, but again, it led to nothing. So the year is now 2018, almost 40 years after Michelle's murder. And the company that was used to create the DNA phenotype or the image was used again. And they used the same technology in Michelle's case as was used to find the Golden State Killer. So this is science I don't understand. But basically what happens is they use the DNA found that they believe is the killer. Using a family tree, they eventually narrow their way down to the killer themselves. And I believe police just did this in the Idaho murders as well. But using this science, they were able to narrow down the DNA to three brothers from Manchester, Iowa. Police began surveillance on these brothers and secretly collecting their DNA. One of the brothers, Jerry Burns, was observed by the police drinking out of a straw one day. So when he finished his drink, he threw it away, and the police went over and took the straw and tested the DNA from that straw. So Jerry Burns was a successful businessman, so it was really not expected that he would be the killer. But as it turns out, the DNA that Jerry Burns left on that straw was a match for the DNA found on Michelle's clothes left there by the killer. So finally, 39 years after Michelle's murder, police go to talk to Jerry Burns, and he has no explanation why his DNA was at the scene. He says, I didn't do it, and I don't even know that girl. But on December 19th, 2018, exactly 39 years after Michelle's murder, police arrest Jerry Burns for the murder of Michelle Martinko. In trial, Jerry Burns pled not guilty, but on August 6, 2020, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for killing Michelle Martinko. And going back, a photo of a young Jerry Burns totally matches that blonde hair, blue-eyed description that they were looking for. And a little bit more about Jerry's past, his wife had committed suicide, and in 2013, on the anniversary of Michelle's death, Jerry's cousin also mysteriously disappeared. So it seems like there's a pattern here. Definitely suspicious. Police also found internet searches done by Jerry with keywords like blonde girl and sex with dead people. Gross. And this is the scariest type of murder because it's a small town and Jerry Burns was a stranger to Michelle. She just happened to be the victim that he chose that night. She was completely innocent. They didn't know each other. He just chose her and it was just straight cold-blooded murder. In trial, her ex-boyfriend Andy testified saying how great of a girl that she was. And Kurt Thomas has said that he regrets not taking Michelle to her car that night. 
Also, sadly, Michelle's parents did not live to see her daughter be brought to justice. Her father died in 1995, and her mother took her own life in 1998, and at that point, she had said that she thought Michelle's ex-boyfriend, Andy, was the one who killed her. So I want to honor the life of Michelle Martinko and how she absolutely fought for her life, which would ultimately lead to solving her own case. So rest in peace, Michelle Martinko and her parents too. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. As always with this podcast, I hope it distracted you from what you have going on in your life right now. And again, I'm so glad you're here. See you next time. Be good and feel good. Bye.